Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, there are some who believe that this pandemic is not such a big thing and everyone should focus on getting back to work. Chief economist for Comsec in Australia says the country could avoid a recession if figures for Q1 show modest growth and it can bounce back in Q3. Now, you might be alone in that thinking, but there is pressure in many places to get people back to work. Not in the UK, it's fair to say. Normal here could be some way off. But what is normal anyway? I'm Phil Dobby, and today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen, we talk about what will change and what will never be the same, at least for quite some time. That's today. So, Steve, what, I mean, what what changes after after COVID nineteen? If there is an after COVID nineteen, because that I mean, there is the danger, isn't there? There might be no cure for this. And we just find we we have to to live with it, and that will obviously severely compromise uh, the, our lifestyles. I mean, we'll we'll be looking back to those halcyon days when we could get in a car and uh, go on holiday, and uh, you know, I mean, I'm just wondering how serious it is going to be. Well, I mean, unless we get a, a a vaccine that works, and we can actually vaccinate everybody on the planet. Uh, which we're you know, talking of the order of six billion bloody doses of a vaccine, mm. which is to just give you an idea of the scale that we need we need to reach. Uh, any reservoir which which is unvaccinated, where people can travel and transmit the virus to somebody else, because it transmits for a week without obvious symptoms, at least uh, up to a week without symptoms, um, it's going to come back again. And so that means yeah. that the whole idea of tourism, uh, unless you can absolutely prove you're safe. Uh, on the way into an airport and out of it the other side, you've got to have two weeks of quarantine wherever you land, and that means goodbye the tourism industry. Yeah, unless we've completely eradicated it. And can't, yeah. can, could, can we completely – I mean, if we took it seriously and said, well, okay, in the, uh, in the month of May, everyone's going to stay at home, everywhere on the planet. We're not going to allow any movement between, between towns, let alone between, between countries. It's astonishing that planes are still flying into Heathrow Airport, for example. So if, mm-hmm. we, if we took uh, all of this seriously and said, well, everyone's going to stay at home, surely if no one's in contact with each other, it's got nowhere to jump. It would die out. Yeah, and this is the this is the point that uh, a complex system theorist that I know well called Yanir Baryam, it's B A R dash Y A M, Yanir being Y A N double E R for anybody who wants to search his work. He's established mm. a website called endcoronavirus.org, and he's just making the, the effectively the complex systems point. It's it's more me- a complex system point than a medical point. Uh, if you can achieve isolation for five weeks, then in the first two weeks you identify everybody who do, who's found family group does not have the virus and those people are free to go and do whatever they they wish to do which does not include meeting anybody who, who's, who's identified in that two weeks of having the virus then right. after that two weeks you have another two weeks to wait for the people who were in the families where the virus did exist to see whether they've got it and then another week after that, it's about a five-week process through the whole thing. Everybody wears masks to reduce the rate of reproduction. And you could get to the stage where the virus was eliminated from the planet in five weeks. If that but that done. sounds 
with today's technology, we've all got mobile phones. And I know this is sort of like the approach they're taking with China, isn't it? You know, you go outside, you mobile, you know, if you've been cleared, you've had the test, then, you know, you have something on your mobile phone and you can show that or swipe it or maybe, you know, you... Uh, even if you do without mobile phones, you could uh, we could paint your hand blue or something with indelible ink. You know, some sort of identification so that we know who you can and can't talk to. All of that seems, with technology or without, seems very achievable, doesn't it? It is, but the, the trouble is that, that there are parts of the world where we don't have that capability. So Africa, in particular, mm. uh, Latin and parts of Latin America, some parts of Asia, though in general Asia has its act. Well, the worry I have is actually Pakistan and India and Bangladesh. Uh, yeah. Those are the countries where I expect to see, uh, particularly as it gets colder in the northern parts of those countries uh, and the higher altitude parts. And uh, I expect to see things get worse there. So there's always going to be a reservoir where this can come from again. And that is the real danger that uh, we'll, we'll eliminate it almost everywhere. But because it's so transmissible, as soon as we go back to previous standards of freedom of movement, it'll come back once more. And that's why I think yeah. there is no new normal. It is the only new you know, return to what we could call normal that could occur after this would be if we had a 100% effective vaccine, which was distributed across the planet in the same way we got rid of polio. But polio was nowhere near as infect- effective as infective as this. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the idea of social distancing in India seems a bit implausible, doesn't it, really, when there's, there's so many people in such confined spaces but i mean could you say well okay the uh, the, the countries that can isolate do and do we just say well we're going to close our borders for a year as you say no no tourism you know well while we work on a uh, how we uh, how we eradicate this thing totally uh, as we try and find a cure for it in the meantime let's just uh, go closed economies basically yeah Which and that, obviously that- change changes supply chain somewhat and this, this is something which is a, is a point about just how valid were the theories that argued for free trade in the first place because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of neoclassical thinkers out there are saying, oh, well, comparative advantage worked really well except for this crisis. It didn't work well. It was simply exploiting low wages. Comparative advantage has always been nonsense. Uh, it, it's, it's arguing for a mobility of capital which does not exist because you can't turn a sheep dip into a, into a wine press. Uh, the, the little logical flaw that Ricardo left out of his theory and that people who are brainwashed by it have never considered properly. Um, mm. uh, but that, all that means is that the, we've been taking advantage of low wages through globalisation. Those days are over. And the only way that you can now maintain sensible production is by being localised. And if you have yeah. countries which successfully eradicate the virus, then they're going to lock their borders after it. New Zealand and Taiwan, I think, being the two uh, countries which may do it first, they can end up being self-sufficient and uh, and they will just basically not let anybody else in uh, until the virus is globally eradicated. So it is going to be a very different globe. Yeah, I, I must admit, I thought, uh, you know, when when we first talked about the idea that maybe that we need shorter um, production lengths and we needed more local manufacturing, I was thinking, Christ, how long would it take uh, in a country like the UK to return to, to local manufacturing, to more mm. local manufacturing? But then you look at, uh, you know, uh, car companies, Formula One car companies, turning their hand at making ventilators and uh, just changing their production cycle within a, w- within a week. Uh, so there is there is some movement in terms of how you can use the capital equipment. Clearly, there there is some, uh, and, and, and you, know, you, you have your machine tools, and you devote the machine tools to a different process. That's feasible to some extent. Mm. You certainly can't use a steel uh, you know a steel mill to make aluminium. Uh, there are some yeah. elements where you simply can't move capital from one spot to another. But you can make a, a again, like the UK did have at one stage twenty percent of its GDP was manufacturing. Now it's ten. To get back to the stage where it replaces the ten percent, it's 
loss, which is half its manufacturing sector. Uh, it won't be an overnight operation. Uh, and I think this is also going to be in the context of serious global warming, serious climate change. And this is, yeah. you know, again, the coronavirus is one manifestation of that because it is not just the fact we're putting more CO2 into the atmosphere. We're polluting it in all sorts of ways. And we're enabling transmissibility of diseases in all sorts of ways. All this stuff uh, is, is just, you know, the coronavirus is, the, is nature's first shot uh, across our bowels. It won't be the so last. this idea of less globalization, I think that argument's been won now, hasn't it? I mean, in a way, Donald Trump was ridiculed. When this is one thing we can look and say, well, at least he was, he was right on that. And uh, probably most of the world is convinced on that now. Yeah. And, then, and it's, it's horrible that it took uh, that sort of uh, personality to, to break the the, the um well, it wasn't wisdom. him. I think the virus had more to do with it. <laughs> but well, he, he started doing it. You know, this is this is John yeah. was going to get some. Uh, he, the last Kudos thing he needs it. some kudos yeah. for it because he was doing it four years earlier, being anti-free trade and so on. And frankly, you and they didn't know why, but he was right. Free trade has always been a con job. But the big problem with that is once you start to have uh, more localization, less globalization, you get back to the one argument that perhaps the only valid argument for globalization is that it prevents war. You look at China, which is a, an economy that's been growing really fast. All of a sudden, we say, well, we don't need your stuff anymore. What what happens? Does China become uh, turn more to, uh, to to weaponry than producing stuff for us? You know, do I, we, I, I do think we... China, China's got a fantastic production foundation. It'll start producing for its own yeah. needs. And that's that was always the strategy it had behind globalization in the first place, was to get hold of American technology as fast as possible, which they've done. And in many ways, they've transcended the Americans. So they, they wouldn't, they, 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 they'll certainly have some a dependence upon moving from exports to domestic production, but they'll do that relatively happily. Uh, it's America that's going to find it harder because they've lost the production capability. But they can get it back, can't they? I mean, they, they can they... rebuild it. But yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've forgotten who. It was. I think it was the Apple, the CEO of Apple. What's his name? Cook saying if he yep. held a meeting of, uh, of machine tool experts in America, he could hold it in a seminar room. The same meeting would take a stadium in China. So training people up to be able to actually do the you know high quality advanced manufacturing that we need that is needed to replace what you're currently importing from China is not an overnight process by any stretch of imagination it involves a large amount of machine tool construction and a large amount of education uh, and genuine education not the credentialism that's taken over in the last 30 or 40 and years and then at the other end of the scale you've got in the UK for example as we come towards fruit picking season uh, there's no one to pick the fruit and uh, no one locally <laughs> wants to do it or the people who've applied haven't got the skills to pick fruit, yeah. which is a sign. Yeah, they've got, well, the skill that requires you getting off your ass and going and, uh, and doing some work, that seems to This is be- the whole reason why I was always critical of the modern monetary argument about exports are a cost and imports are a benefit. Production is not a cost. Production is a skill. And if you outsource the production, then you don't have the skills for manufacturing and production and you become dependent upon your paper economy. And when this crisis like this happened, nobody yeah. wants your paper. But how does that solve the issue about, you know, where you've got you've got low wage jobs? I mean, you'd automate a chunk of it, wouldn't you, I guess, if you if you didn't have access to those low wages, you'd automate a chunk of it. But there's still and, and, there's still the issue the that we've, we've, we've grown. It, it is part of the I mean, we've also got grown to accept a, a standard of living, which we which we all aspire to. And nobody wants to go and do those jobs where you work long hours. Eastern Europeans do, but the Brits don't want to do it. Oh, that's, and I mean, that's probably not going to change. The standard of living, I think, as we're going to realise how illusory it was. And people will be very resentful as they become come aware of that and go backwards. 
but like a- again, this is something which, in some ways, this is a crisis of the developed nations because if you're in a developing nation or a third world nation, uh, you have an acceptance of, of tougher working conditions, and you just you will do it because that's that's your your aspirations. Mm. Uh, set by a, a tougher circumstance, whereas the West is going to be very resentful. Uh, and I don't think there's going to be much sympathy from the East, the West in this process. Are we going to see rising inequality? We talked about that a little bit last week in that, you know, that uh, companies are saying, well, you know, to, to, to get back on track, we need uh, less regulation. And that obviously means deregulation of wage controls. But on the other side, you know, we've got massive support for the uh, National Health Service and frontline workers, and I'm th- thinking people will be saying there'll be quite a bit of pressure, I would have thought, from governments to ensure that those people are paid, that the people who've been, you know, putting their life on the line are paid uh, an adequate amount of money. I have to say, none of that uh, has, has come forward just yet. No one's saying, well, you're doing such a good job, we should be increasing your salaries. But you would have thought there'd be pressure for that. But similarly, uh, big companies will want to make bigger, bigger profits. Yeah, and that's what worries me. I'm just seeing some of the scuttlebutt coming out of Britain right now about uh, uh, Boris Johnson being under pressure and the finance sector wanting to put Michael Gove in charge. It seems like uh, obvious reasons Boris has realised it's important to maintain the national health and he's sympathetic to increasing wages for the working people after his experience of being having his life saved by them. Uh, that doesn't apply, seem to apply to Gove, and he um, it might be the finance sector making a move to, to get rid of somebody who's actually learned just how bad this crisis can be. Yeah. Well, that is the next question, really. Are we going to have greater or lesser respect for socialism, which is seen as being a, a, a bit of a, a dirty word, uh, or uh, are we going to go to more unfettered capitalism, or are we going to see see less of it? I think less, I think unfettered capitalism has certainly had its ideological day because again there's just comparing the the uh, infection rates and the level of diseases in the west versus the east it's the countries where the disease first evolved which have the lowest infection rates and that's because the acceptance of the role of the state and saying you you must isolate uh, you know the totally over the top draconian stuff done by china at the bottom is I've, you know, I came to expect from having spent some time there 30 years ago and seeing how slogans get turned into extreme behaviour by the desire not to be criticised later for not doing the slogan properly. Um, but it, the, the East, East Asian nations in particular have crushed this virus far more effectively than it happened in the West, and that's going to strengthen the ideology of a state as part of a functional social system rather than the ideology of the free market. Right, but you're getting so there's the blend there between socialism and uh, totalitarianism, isn't there? So I mean, you've, <laughs> there was, I don't know if you've seen last week there was a, a video circulating of a, a sunbather on the grass, uh, on the uh, on the slopes alongside Bondi Beach. The police picking mm-hmm. him up and trying to handcuff him, and they've basically got him pinned to the ground for sunbathing for that crime of sunbathing. So I'm just wondering whether you know, and we we do obviously have a. a, a Maybe totalitarian is a is is a strong word for lots of Asia, but certainly uh, the sense of liberty is not as great as it is in in the West. So are we going to see that shift happening as well in the West. I think we are, but the, the West is going to be resentful about it and drag yeah. kicking and screaming towards it. Whereas for uh, people in Asia, it's it's a common expectation. The state is going to tell you what to do to some degree, and uh, I mean it's is that a good thing though. The- see, it seems yes, like a it's, huge it's, step backwards. Well, backwards, but backwards in what sense, economically or biologically? Well, it depends who the state is. I mean, Boris Johnson telling me what to do, I wouldn't be too happy about. 
No, true, but the, but the acceptance that the state has a strong role is something Marx could see in, in back in the 19th century. He talked about there being two classes of feudalism, the um, the uh, uh, English feudalism, which was incredibly weak because the rain just basically dribbled out of the sky all the time. You didn't need a strong state to build irrigation systems. But in China in particular and Asia in general, because you had monsoonal rain, you had to manage the rain and therefore there was a role for the state to build the infrastructure to manage that monsoonal rain. And you therefore had a stronger centralized state. Uh, the Magna Carta never happened in China. So this argues that it's for a resilient society, you need a combination of the innovation the market could generate, but the resilience the state system gives you. And this, the, the, the neoclassical economics completely ignores the issue of resilience. And that's led us to an incredibly fragile uh, global economic system. And the, the systems which don't, which are going to dominate in the future, the ones that have that resilience built in. So back to our sunbather. I guess mm. he was in the wrong because I mean he's well he was socially distancing, but he wasn't socially distancing because he was he wasn't staying at home. So uh, and if we all did that, then we'd, we'd, we'd if, have a problem. If, but if we sunbag two and a half meters from each other, that'd be fine. It's <laughs> uh, it's it's the easy spread of the virus within about a two meter range of somebody who's got it. Um, so in that case, that's that's a classic case of the Australian police being behaving like the waters of the the convict period rather than sensible. Uh, yeah. But yeah, we, I mean, I, I, my, we went to the beach recently, and I think we were about fifty meters from the nearest person. Um, so this is talking in Thailand, of course. So yeah. so long as you make. Well, I think he was quite away from so. someone until the police came along and pinned him to the ground, and then obviously yeah, yeah, all we, social distancing. Yeah. So, but I mean, if they, if if everyone had been checked and uh, you know then and we they knew that they were all clear, then it, would, it wouldn't mm. be an issue. And uh, but it wouldn't be an issue with them lying there either. But see, so we can't. That's we just mentioned in terms of industry that aren't going to exist in the future. We just mentioned tourism. One of the one is going to be education. This is scary. Yeah. Because, again, schools and universities, uh, you, know, you have people in very close proximity to each other. Uh, unless you know 100% they don't have the disease, you can't afford to open universities and schools on a large basis. Right, anymore. but wouldn't the hope be that if we were all checked, if we had enough tests, and Britain seems to be having a significant problem with that, but there's also questions about the liability of some of these tests. But if we had liable tests, reliable tests, and uh, we had a lot of them and we were all checked... Uh, and we also had apps that made sure that you know we we were notified if we came into contact with anyone who hadn't been tested positive. Then we life could return to normal by and large. We'd just have this surveillance regime hanging over us, and we'd all have these mobile phone apps telling us uh, uh, tracking our tracking our every move, which we wouldn't be happy about with. But maybe it's the price we have to ultimate price we have to pay for all of this. It's a well, huge move for us, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's the surveillance. Again, 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 you can't do it in the market economy. You can't say you've got to pay for the surveillance. Surveillance has to be imposed upon you. Um, and, and equally, the testing has to be imposed. You can't be paying to be tested. Mm. Uh, so this is always in which it's obvious the market system can't cut it. Well, you could be – I mean, you could find some sort of market mechanism. You could say, well, actually, you have to pay to go out uh, – <laughs> But then I guess you go, then you got the problem that the police then have to enforce who's going in and who's staying out. And you have the whole issue. You've got to be able to quarantine those who have the disease from those who don't, which comes back to Yanni Barbam's 
recommendation of, about a way to do it in a five-week period and, and just get rid of the virus completely. Uh, but again, we have the social inequality and uh, global inequality uh, that's easy to talk about for a developed country. It's very hard to talk about for Africa. Of course, you know, the idea that you are going to have to go into this surveillance regime applies to everybody, irrespective of their of their income as well. So, I mean, from that, at least it's egalitarian. The um, <laughs> On the idea of unfettered capitalism, I wonder where the United States is going to sit on public health. Uh, you know, yeah. if their numbers are really bad, it's already, you know, about 20% of all deaths on the planet in the United States. Uh, are they going to be so concerned about the idea that Obamacare was a bad idea? They might actually think, well, maybe it's a good idea and we, we need to have more of it. Yeah, I mean, again, the, the, the our privatised education, health and care and healthcare is linked to your employment. I mean, the... Talk about Crazy bashing idea. those to yeah. backing those two ideas out of out of the park. So we just hope I just hope there'll be a shift in America's mentality over that. But um, you know we're talking about America. So what about housing? Uh, are we, it, what's it going to do to house prices? Is it, is it going to be the uh, <laughs> this is is this your chance now, Steve, to say that house prices in Australia are going to fall forty percent, and this time it's really going to happen? Uh, well, or are we going to cocoon more, and therefore we're going to we're going to pay more? We've got low interest rates, low interest rates, rising inflation, plus we want a house that's nice because we're going to have to spend more time in it. Maybe house prices could actually go the other way. Well, I think there's going to be a break on the credit system. That's that's the first obvious sign. During the crisis itself, there'll be far less buying, and of course, a large part of the uh, the support of the market has been not just the renters, but also the Ubers, uh, the Uber people you know, having rental properties that they actually went out through Uber rather than through um, uh, local purchasing. I think Uber's I think Uber's history. And if that is the case, then a large part of the financial support for overvalued markets like Australia's has gone as well. So um, I'm not going to put any money out of this time. I'm not going to walk to Kosciuszko uh, over it again. But uh, this, what Australia's well, managed to, to build out Australia. of the pro- is the prosperity is just expensive house prices, no capacity to, to, to replace the manufacturing that it now needs to replace that it can't import anymore. Yeah, because we've invested, but we'd have more to invest in, I guess, wouldn't we? We'd have all these extra businesses and uh, and industries to invest in. So I'm wondering how much of you know the money that's gone into housing in Australia is because we've made money, we've got a bit, of, we've got a bit on the side. And we've put it into housing because we've seen house prices have always gone up. But if we, if if the whole structure of the economy is changing, we're creating more more industries. Then there's a lot more to invest in. And if it's almost starting from scratch, you'd expect the return on some of these is going to be pretty good. Yeah, but not not the return on housing anymore. And this is one thing I'm actually just living in, in Asia now and seeing, uh, you know, how much cheaper the house prices here. I mean, the place I'm renting uh, is costing about nine thousand baht, which is about five hundred Australian dollars or about three hundred American. Uh, dollars per month to rent and like that itself is rent is above above the income that somebody would earn as a security guard for a month uh, mm. on in, in the property we're in so it's expensive but it's incredibly cheap at the same time and if you then look at people who are working in factories uh, and and working in food production and so on they don't need the same income to support their house prices or their rents so consequently yeah. a large part of the cost of cons- and this is what point Michael Hudson's been making for a long time. One reason America is so uncompetitive, its house prices are too high. There's too much private debt. If you get rid of the private debt, you reduce the rentier charge in the economy and you can have trace with a drastic fall in your 
in your uh, your wages without having a fall in your living standards. In fact, you'll have an increase in the living standards. So if we get to the point where you actually have to be competitive in a genuine sense rather than using a credit system to keep you afloat, then the house prices of places like Australia simply can't be sustained because those house prices give you high cost of manufacturing. Right, because, yeah, because people have to earn so much to be able to afford to, to pay those house prices. Yeah. But on the other side, there's going to be a lot of people wanting to live in Australia now because they're looking and saying they've had very few deaths. Uh, you know, this could be a healthy place to live. That could, that could push the uh, the international demand even higher in Australia. Yeah, in terms of uh, that is one actually curious thing. The Chinese don't need to worry about it. the Chinese of you know in that sense that the, 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 there's questions about their data, of course. But mm. they have crushed they have crushed the rate of the growth for the virus already. So one of the safest places to be in the world is China. Um, but uh, for the USA. Uh, forget about it. Anybody wanting to be a, a, a student from China wanting to study in America, that's not going to happen. Uh, if you look at Canada, which is the other place that uh, people uh, from China used to go to, you know, uh, the Vancouver market being one market driven up by a lot of Chinese purchases, that's going to fall over as well. There's, in fact, 40,000 deaths in Canada. Um so yeah, yeah. Uh, but I but I think over, overall uh, the idea of international mobility uh, is 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 a goner while the virus so, is still around. Yeah, for, for for in terms of travel generally and tourism and moving around the world and living in different places, but also obviously in terms of supply lines, we've talked about how they're they're, they're going to be short and we're going to produce more locally, and we're already seeing it a mistrust of of China. I mean, we're it's uh, it seems like this is an opportunity now for people to bring their prejudices to the fore. Yeah, but I think the prejudice ultimately are going to be against Americans. I'm not so sure because the Chinese mm. and um, the Chinese the Chinese have stopped it. Uh, ultimately, if you look at where the disease is, the, the biggest reservoir for the disease now is the United States of America. Sure, but I mean, President Trump is still there blaming China because, and you know, the, the, the we're hearing it referred to as the Wuhan virus. It, it started. We've had crazy crackpot theories that actually came from a laboratory in China. All those stories circulating in the, uh, I was going to say in the uh, on the internet, but not on mainstream media in the United States as well. Uh, this is uh, you know Fox News and the and the like. Uh, there's you can, mm. everyone's got to blame someone, and it all started in China. So let's blame the Chinese. That's handy. Yeah, well, I mean, that that'll happen. But I think also I think China might start calling the Washington virus because I mean the number of cases in in America is coming up to ten times. Yeah. The moment in China. That means, given the population difference, forty times the uh, the, the number of cases per head, um, and then the place which is going to be hardest to suppress in is going to be America. So I think it's time to start calling it the Washington virus. Are we going to become less globally concerned citizens at the end of all of this? Are we going to forget about problems in Africa, for example? Is the idea of foreign aid going to be something that we we just drop from the balance sheet? Well, I think, in fact, we've realised we can't afford to forget about Africa because that'll make it the reservoir. Uh, you, you, you can't. This is the thing about public health. You, uh, when it's something like a, you know, heart attacks and and so on, that's an individual. Uh, uh, disease. You don't. You can't give somebody else a heart attack. Well, you can, but it's. <laughs> pardon me, going there. Uh, you, 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 this is a transmissible disease. The only way to stop it is to have a global approach to the transmissibility, and that means you've got to think about the globe whether you want to or not. So, uh, obviously, buying more local stuff, buying more online. Um, I mean, this is going to expedite the, the the demise of the high street, isn't it? This whole thing. 
But on the positive side, uh, maybe, I mean, this. I guess there's two sides to this, isn't it? On the one side, we, we've got used to buying online. But on the other side, maybe we'll say, well, actually, we want to buy more local stuff, which perhaps we can't buy online. You know, we may, we may, we may be less greedy, we might consume less, and we might make it more local. It would be nice to think so, wouldn't it? But that's that means that the economy is operating at a, a whole different speed, a whole different velocity. And I think we've, I think our velocity is we've far exceeded what the planet can sustain, and we're going to be forced to go backwards. And this is the beginning of it. Nobody chose this virus to happen, uh, and the virus couldn't give a damn about our social system or our, it just wants our population. So yes, we're going to be forced backwards, and this is the very beginning of it. So buy things like going to the local buyers markets and stuff like that might become more common, perhaps than. Than buying online, maybe it'll shift back again. We were reliant on online now in lo- in lots of cases because we can't get out. But maybe uh, maybe we'll t- the scales will tip the other way. Well, there is local online as well. I mean, in terms of living here in 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 Trang and in southern Thailand, uh, we're doing two things. We're getting, we're going to local markets to go shopping. Everybody has wearing masks. Every uh, every stall has alcohol uh, gel to wipe your hands with. Uh, everybody wipes their money as they collect it from uh, any exchange. So the local thing is still working. But equally, there's a thing called Food Panda here, and uh, everybody's getting local deliveries from local restaurants using the internet. So uh, what's going to disappear is collective uh, things, like going to see movies, for example. I think the movie industry in terms of Mm. uh, cinemas, uh, that's history. Um, Going to restaurants? uh, restaurants, no, because they won't be economical. You're going to have to sit too far apart from anybody else. Yeah, in the short term. But I, I mean, we're hoping that we are going to eradicate this, aren't we? Um, I mean, there's two stages to it. There's the there's while we have to socially distance and we're we're wary of uh, uh, of catching it. But at some point, hopefully in a year or two, we're going to be saying, well, okay. It's largely eradicated in our country, and and we've got restrictions on people coming in from places where they could have it. Yeah, eradication is a potential goal. It can be a combination of things. Countries which successfully crush the curve, and that's Taiwan and New Zealand, will probably lead the way there. Um, but then, yes, it's a, it's a vaccine and being able to vaccinate everybody, and you eliminate it in the same way you eliminated polio or smallpox. Uh, but the trouble is, another one's going to come along, and this is back to the theme of a book I read back when I was doing my PhD uh, called "The Coming Plague" by Laurie Garrett, who was then the New York Times yes. medical researcher, and she has pointed out that uh, the there the, the there is will point there will be a disease which both increases transmissibility and increases virulence. She expected it to be a version of the flu. It wasn't. It's a version of the cold, apparently. The coronavirus is part of the family of diseases that give us the common cold. Uh, uh, but it happened, and it's going to happen again. And the fact we avoid one doesn't mean we're never going to see one again in the future. And it'll happen more rapidly because with the increased human pressure on the planet, we're more likely to be a place where the virus has evolved to begin with. So we've made ourselves targets. And we, we simply can't say this is over, you know, it won't happen another 100 years. It might happen in 10 years. So we, mm. we, we really have to say, how do we redesign our impact on the planet to reduce the level of impact we're creating and to make it less likely that something is transmissible, this will spread as rapidly and be as destructive for our productive systems as it was this time round. So, yes, there is the new normal has to be localised and less and less pressure on the planet, and I just hope we do it without being wiped out yeah, yeah. by the planet. And, we, and with, we are social creatures, so we need to be able to still socialise. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, 
to the point where you'd almost start to say, well, what's the point of living if you can't actually go out and meet a few people and have a good time? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a simian thing. It's a, a human thing, it's an animal thing. If your animals, the very few animals are anything remotely like the model of Homo economicus. Um, <laughs> You know, the number of animals that live solitary lives is trivial. Mm. Uh, we are a social creature, and, and most animals are social creatures. We want that sociability, but it's normally with a very complex web of life, and we've made that web far too simple by slashing and burning the, the planet's ecosystem, and now the planet is coming back to slash and burn us. Well, do you know what? It, it, for the ability for me to go out and have a decent curry with a few of my mates every couple of weeks, I'd be quite happy to see the, uh, the border forces uh, roping off my town and, and insisting that everyone who comes in can prove that they haven't got the virus. That's quite a big call, isn't it? But I wonder if that's the sort of uh, the sort of regime that we might find ourselves living in. Maybe well, that's, what I, that's what's happening actually here in, in Trang because the border is cut. Uh, you have to have a medical certificate and you have to have a reason to come across the, the border of the province of Trang. And there are seven cases here at the moment and it looks like it's potentially being eradicated here. And once it is, life can go back to normal in Trang so long as it's self-sufficient for most of its needs. Right. And and there's an agriculture producing area it will be for fundamental needs, but not for not for elaborate ones. So uh, I've asked you this question before, but uh, an end to the EU out of out of all of this? Quite a, yeah, I think a, so. Quite I mean, if, you, if you, Giannis Varoufakis and I are on the same side of an argument at last over this, and I think even mm. you might be. So uh, I think the odds are getting better that the EU is, is terminated. Uh, uh, coming from the bottom up, because, of course, Italy in particular has suffered badly, Italy and Spain, uh, have all suffered very badly out of how the EU's managed this. And, but it, again, I don't think it'll be a peaceful process that it falls apart. So in. five years' time, do you think we're still going to be in this sort of uh, this halfway house where we might be able to go out, but we, we, you know, we need to identify that we're, we're clear and we're still having a degree of social distancing and a, a lot of you know, the, the things that we accepted as normal uh, in 2019 won't be normal again in five years? I'm thinking now more now more now the limits to growth and uh, the fact that uh, its predictions were that the turning point would be pretty much 2020 to 2040 in terms of human population starting to plunge because we've wiped out the the sustainability of the planet. So I I think this is the beginning of a very abnormal normal. I, I, I never feel good after talking to you, Steve Keen. I I. I, I you, basically, you ruin my days. I'm going to have to talk to you less often. Now, we will talk again next week. Uh, thank you for your time. I'm glad life is going well for you. Uh, I'm doing lots of DIY. That's uh, how I'm uh, managing to keep myself sane, but I can see the novelty factor of that might disappear fairly swiftly. Yeah, but, fair um, enough. Yep. <laughs> and lots of bike rides until, until the police pull me over. <laughs> Good to talk. See you soon. Okay, mate. Bye. Yep. All those things you talked about, of course, I mean, most of them could actually be good news, you know, ultimately, if we live within our means in a more sustainable way, uh, if economic growth is no longer the be-all and end-all and we find some sort of compromised system that gives us a decent standard of living without all the income disparity and without ruining the planet. But that is quite a big quantum shift, isn't it? And as I said, many parts of the world at the beginning are talking about coming out of a lockdown as though it's all over Red Rover. Uh, That's it for today. I'm Phil Dobby, back with Steve Keen again next week. Thanks for listening. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.